All right. Uh, well, I want to welcome you again to Seven Mile Road Church. My name is Ajay Thomas. I'm a pastor here with a team of folks as we're starting this brand new baby church, planting a church. Uh, if you have questions about church planting, what is that? Why are you allowed to do it? What are you trying to do here? Um, please come catch up with us, talk with us. If you have questions about Jesus, Bible, God, Christianity, any of it, um, please come and talk with us. We would love to talk with you. When you're a new church like Seven Mile Road is, inevitably you get asked a whole host of questions of every kind. So you're always having conversations because people are constantly asking questions, trying to define and describe what this thing is. What, what is this that happens in the basement of a church? And so you get all kinds of questions. And then you've got to have the conversations. Questions like, so is this an Indian church? And so then you have the conversation, no, no, there's a bunch of brown folks here, but they're not all Indian. This isn't a church just for Indians. We're trying to reach anybody and everybody that God would give us access to. And then with a name like Seven Mile Road, you're inevitably going to have a host of questions. Seven Mile Road, what is that? And so then you have to have the conversation, no, no, Eminem does not pastor here. This isn't connected with him. This isn't in Detroit. That's eight mile. This is Seven Mile Road. So then we open our Bibles to Luke 24 and have the conversation. Perhaps more than all the questions, the question that we get asked the most is just the basic one. What is this thing? What kind of church is this? And so then we have the conversation. And so we use words like evangelical, but nobody knows what that means. And then we say we're connected to the Acts 29 network, but that doesn't help. We say we're part of the four C's. And most people think that's the breadcrumb company that makes the iced tea mix, and they have no idea what that is either. So here's how we want to start describing who we are. It's sort of exactly parroted for what Kevin said. Seven Mile Road is a gospel-centered, missional community. That's what we are. That's what you would describe us as. I know that's not the question most people are asking. They want to know, are you Catholic or are you Pentecostal? And, and we want to change the conversation to say, we're none of those. We're a gospel-centered, missional community. On your welcome cards in the back was this blurb about who we are. And there it says, Seven Mile Road is a gospel-centered, missional community in Philadelphia. That's what we're about. We're about Jesus and his gospel, Jesus and his community, and Jesus and his mission. And so for the last two months, what we've been trying to do is sort of describe and define why those three words are so important to us and so shaping and defining of us. Gospel, mission, community. And to do that, we've actually been working through the second and third chapter of the book of Ephesians, this book in the Bible that the Apostle Paul writes. And in the second and third chapter, we've been working our way through these three words. If you were with us in May, we looked at Ephesians 2 and the first 10 verses, and we tackled the first of those big words, the word gospel. And if you remember, we said that the gospel is the bad news that we are sinners, but the good, glorious news that Jesus is a Savior. We talked about us being dead in our sins, spiritual corpses, unable to move towards God, but God, being rich in mercy and grace and love and kindness, made us alive in Christ. Then last month, we kept going right along in the text in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and we covered the next of those big words, 
the word community. And if you were here last time, we cast this glorious vision for a new community called the church. A community that was not going to be separated by age or segregated by race or divided by anything. For Jesus had died and in reconciling us to God had actually reconciled us one to another. That Jesus in breaking the barrier between you and God broke the wall of hostility, the lesser barrier between you and me. That if Jesus has made us sons and daughters of God, then we are necessarily unavoidably brothers and sisters with one another. There's this glorious new community being knit called the church. And it was good. It, it was so good. For many of us, it's sort of the first time we're beginning to see the church isn't so much a place you go as much as it is a people that you belong to. Not a building you sit in, but rather a community that you're a part of. That's good news. In fact, I have to warn you that it's such good news that some of us are tempted to sort of stop there. Gospel, community. That's what we want. That's what we're about. And so in a sense, we sort of get saved. We get incorporated into Jesus' church. And then we just take a seat and sort of are watching our clocks, waiting for Jesus to come back. This gospel community thing is so good that unfortunately for many of us, this becomes the extent of our church experience. This becomes Christianity for us. And before we know it, we don't mean for it to happen, but we sort of develop this bunker mentality, and we settle in and we dig our roots deep here, and we sort of shut ourselves off from the world around us. And you don't mean for it to happen, but before you know it, church becomes this assortment of activities, this buffet of programs to keep you entertained, to keep you fed. And so you sort of go from Sunday school to youth group to Bible study to singles group to couples fellowship to men's fellowship and women's fellowship and senior club. And then, you know, the Christians who like the outdoors hang together and the church folk who like chess hang together and the bowling church team is born and before you know it this whole thing becomes this inward faced insular community that's just about feeding and entertaining the folks that are already here you see gospel and community are beautiful words glorious realities but you can't stop there because you got to push through because there's one more hugely important word and that is the word mission. Seven Mile Road is a gospel community for sure, but it's a gospel community on mission. Or you might say it's a gospel-centered, missional community. And when you get to Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, you find that the Apostle Paul won't let you stop with the first two words either. Because talking about the gospel and the community is going to necessarily propel him to talking about mission. Talking about the gospel like he does in 2 verses 1 through 10 compels him, propels him to talking about the community that that gospel creates in 11 through 22. And talking about that community compels him and propels him to talking about the mission that that community is on in chapter 3 verses 1 through 13. Jesus and his gospel births Jesus' community and that community is on Jesus' mission. That's the rhythm we're shooting for at Seven Mile Road. You have to hear that. 
we gather in community so that we can scatter on mission. That's the rhythm. That's the breath. It's sort of like inhaling and exhaling. We inhale, we gather in community so that we can exhale on mission. And the gospel is the air that we're breathing through it all. We gather so that we can celebrate and remember and be strengthened in the gospel and breathe it in so that we can scatter on mission and breathe that gospel out. You do either one without the other and you're dead. You breathe in without breathing out or you breathe out without breathing in and you're done. You gather without scattering or you scatter without gathering and we're done. And so we want this rhythm of gospel-centered missional community. Those are the words that Paul has been teaching us, and today we're on the last of those. Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. And Paul is going to teach us about mission. And what Paul is going to teach us is that mission is lowly people making Jesus known so that God is highly glorified. Mission is lowly people making Jesus known so that God is highly glorified. If you have your Bible, it's page 977. It's the passage Philip read for us. I'm just going to read three verses, 7 through 10, that we're going to focus on today. Hear the word of the Lord. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let's just pray, ask God for his help in this time and then we'll work through this text together. Lord our God, we come to you, and in sincerity we ask you for help. Holy Spirit, I ask you to fill my words with your power so that they would transcend just human thought and be God's word to us. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and assist your people as they hear, that our hard hearts would be softened, our blind eyes would be opened, our deaf ears would be loose, our dull minds would be enlightened so that we might hear and believe and see and understand your word and apply it to our hearts. Call us, O oh God, to Christ and call us to his mission this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Paul is going to start talking to us about mission, the mission of God that he has been entrusted with and that the church has been entrusted with. That is you and me. This is the mission to Paul and to the church. And remember, church is not place, people, not building, community. So this is the mission given to you and to me. And to simplify, here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to give us the who, the what, and the why of mission. The who, the what, and the why. So let's begin with the who. Who does mission? And Paul is going to answer lowly people. Lowly people do mission. Look at verse 7 and 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, 
this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is going to talk about who gets involved in mission, and to do that, he starts by talking about himself, and this is how he describes himself. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. In some translations, he actually says, though I am the less than the least. Now that's an interesting phrase, less than the least. That word least in the English grammar is what we call a superlative. That just means it's a word describing something to the utmost. So if you have the word highest, it's the highest because by definition, there's nothing higher. If it's something's the lowest, it's the lowest because there's nothing lower. And yet Paul invents this phrase to communicate his utter unworthiness. He says, I am less than the least of all the saints. Just consider what Paul's saying. He's not just saying I'm the least of the apostles, like Peter, James, John, Thomas, those guys got in before me and I'm less than them. He's saying I'm less than the least of all the saints. Like if you could round up every Christian, you find the most raggedy, pathetic, broken down, beaten up, barely hanging on Christian, I'm less than that guy. Now we, we would have some problems with what Paul's saying, because we would say, listen, Paul is playing a good game here, but he's just being false, falsely modest. This is fake humility. I mean, after all, who of us that are Christian wouldn't drool for Paul's spiritual resume? I mean, if you're church planter extraordinaire, pastor extraordinaire, 13 of the letters that you've written get ended up in the Bible, then you're exempt from this less than the least nonsense, right? And, and yet, if Paul is telling the truth, if Paul really means this, we still have problems. Because we in our culture would say what Paul needs is a good shot of self-esteem. I mean, find a shrink, lie him on a couch, work out his issues. What is this? less than the least nonsense. But here's the thing, Paul and his estimation of himself is actually spot on. Paul is a terrible sinner and a lowly saint. You see, for one, we know who Paul was. We get to flip back two books and we read Acts and we find that Paul wasn't always this pious man planting churches, writing epistles. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He captured and killed Christians. He had a bad past. But it's not just who Paul was that gets him to say this. It's who Paul is. His present tense understanding of himself that makes him say, I am less than the least of all the saints. Why? You see, as Paul matures, as he gets closer and closer to God, the strangest thing happens. Rather than seeing himself as less and less sinful, his unworthiness, his awareness of his sin only grows all the more, all the time. The closer he gets to Jesus, the more he sees God's holiness, and the more he sees God's holiness, the more he sees his unworthiness. And the cross of Jesus only gets bigger over time, bridging that gap, rather than smaller. This morning I was at St. Mark's, which is the church that's hosting us, and we were talking through 1 Timothy. Some of the folks who are saints and doubleheaders with me are attending here also. And this morning we were talking about Paul's letter to Timothy, and we said that in 1 Timothy, Paul actually says the phrase, I am the chief of sinners. Now when does he say that? He doesn't say that five minutes after his conversion or two months after he becomes a Christian. 
He says that towards the end of his life, right before 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you have Paul saying, I've run the race, I've fought the fight, I'm done. And yet before his last hours, after he's planted all the churches and written all these letters, Paul's evaluation is, I am the chief of the sinners. You see, we've sort of got this thing backwards. We think the cross is huge when we first come to faith, and then it slowly gets smaller over time because we're more and more holy. Paul's got it the other way. Paul says the cross and the gospel is more necessary for me today than it was yesterday, and it will still be more necessary tomorrow. Jesus, his gospel, I am more in need of it still than I ever was, and I will forever be so. Because I am less than the least of all the saints. Has the gospel done that kind of humbling work in you? Is the cross something in the rearview mirror or is it bigger today than it was yesterday? Will it be bigger still tomorrow than it was today? Now why is Paul stressing all this? It's because Paul is showing you that mission is not done by perfect people but by the imperfect. Mission is not by high, great men and women, but lowly men and women. The gospel is preached and ministered and communicated and shared, not by the sinless, but by the sinful who are aware of their sin and are banking on grace. Maybe you're here, you're a part of Samar Road, and we've had this conversation all the time, and you're struggling with, how am I going to be on mission how am I going to tell people about Jesus when my own life is not altogether there? What I want you to see from Paul is, Paul's awareness of his unworthiness and lowness and sin does not drive him away from mission, but actually drives him deeper into it. Because it drives him deeper into the gospel and fresh forgiveness and fresh grace makes him fresh on mission all the more. You see, we've bought into some kind of lie that what we have to share with people is how good we've become. When did that become our message? Didn't we get into this thing called Christianity because we admitted we are the chief of sinners. We're the lowest of the low. What we have to share with people is not look how good I am, but I am like you. But look at him. Let's look at him together. He is a great Savior. And it's that awareness that actually makes mission not a chore for Paul, but actually a joy. You see, if you're honest and you're a Christian and you've sat here, the second you hear the word mission, there's just this nasty taste in your mouth, this unsettled feeling in your stomach, because all it does is produce in you guilt. You hear the word mission and you think of, that's something I ought to be doing but don't do well, or I ought to be doing a lot and don't do often. It's just this words like obligation, duty, chore. If you ask Paul, he would honestly say, mission is a joy, a gift, a privilege, a grace. Listen to how he describes his call to mission. Verse 2, the stewardship of God's grace was given to me for you. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Verse 8, though I am the least, was given to me the grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see, we use that word back in chapter 2 when we describe 
salvation. This unearned, undeserved, unbelievable gift from God. And Paul says that's the same word I'm going to use to describe mission. Not, I have to do this, but can you believe Jesus saved me and I get to do this? Can you believe that someone like me gets to be on mission? You see, I know how we would normally motivate people to mission, to share your faith, and to be on mission, to love your neighbors, to serve the poor. We unload guilt and condemnation, and we wag our finger, and we get you to do it. We're a church plant. We need people to be on mission. And yet guilt is always going to be short-lived. You see, the only way you're ever going to be truly motivated for mission is if you get the gospel. You need a bigger view of the gospel. If your heart is cold towards mission, what you need is not motivation. What you need is not more facts about the lost. What you need is more awareness of the gospel. More awareness of the enormity of your sin, like Paul, and the enormity of God's grace. So that it goes from, I have to do this, to can you believe I get to do this? He showed grace to someone like me, the chief of the sinners, to one who is less than the least of all the saints. Mission is not done by the sinless, but by the sinful who are aware of their sinfulness. And their awareness of their sinfulness drives them only deeper to Jesus and deeper to Jesus' mission. Who does mission? Paul would say, lowly, ordinary, imperfect, weak, needy people like you and me. But Paul will give you not only the who, but the what? Paul, what is mission? And Paul will answer, mission is lowly people making Jesus known. You ask Paul, what is it that lowly people like you, lowly people like me, are called to do? This is what he says, verse 8 and 9. To me, though I am very, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Here's what mission is. It is to bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden in God for the ages. Alright, that is a long, confusing, weird phrase. What is this mystery that Paul is to spend his life unpacking for people, bringing to light to people? Verse 6 in the passage tells us, This is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Right? I know that doesn't initially wow you, but here's what Paul's saying. This is the mystery that God had tucked away for all the ages that has now been made known. The Gentiles are in. They're a part of the people of God. That is, everyone outside of Judaism, all the families of the earth, are in. All right, why is that such glorious news. Why was that a mystery in times past? This is how it worked. In the beginning, God created a man named Adam. Genesis 3, he falls. And you get in Genesis 3 the beginning of mission because a sinful man hides from God and yet God does what? Chases him, pursues him, is on mission to bring him back into fellowship with himself. That's how mission begins. God is the beginning of mission. He's the missionary. And then a few chapters pass and you're in Genesis 12 and God calls this guy named Abraham and he says, listen, I've got a plan. 
I'm going to bless you and all your descendants so that through you, Genesis 12, all the families of the earth might be blessed. I'm going to enter into this special relationship with you so that through you, all the peoples might be brought into relationship with me. So that's the plan. That's what God wanted to work out. You read from Genesis to Malachi, and by the time you're done with the end of Malachi, you go, those were some good intentions, but what a foolish God. Because Israel, the one that he was banking on to be the light to the Gentiles, to bring them in, they themselves rebel against their God. And it seems like the whole plan comes to naught. God had some good intentions, but it was a bit foolish to think to pull this off. That's why Matthew 1 is so brilliant when you hear there's a baby in Bethlehem. Suddenly the promise of God has life and legs and there's some breath. And now Paul is saying, and now we see that in and through Jesus, he did it. He accomplished it. Through his death, God has kept the promise. All the families of the earth have been brought in. Gentiles 2, verse 6, they also are partakers of the promise, heirs with the people of God. He pulled it off. The mystery that was hidden, he did it. He accomplished it. He pulled it off. And Paul says, I get to spend my life telling everyone, consider the wisdom of God. Verse 11 tells us that this was according to the eternal purposes that he realized in Christ Jesus. That this wasn't an audible Jesus, his gospel, bringing the church together. This wasn't a God got up to the line, saw the defense stacked against him, changed the play, made Jesus come. But rather, even when you thought this whole thing was not, this is what God was working out all along. And he did it. So that now brown-skinned Indians, and I'm not going to be racist, but other-skinned people can become a part of the people of God. He did it. Or another way Paul says it is, we get to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. That is, we get to tell everyone of the unfathomable, innumerable, unbelievable riches that are ours in Christ. We get to tell people, Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but you have been made alive in Christ. We get to tell people, you were by nature objects of wrath, Ephesians 2, but now you have become children of God through Jesus. We get to tell people, Ephesians 2, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the enemy of God, but now you are following Jesus. You were headed for destruction, but now you have eternal life, and it will take you all eternity to discover the riches that are yours in Christ. This is what we get to do, lowly people, Making Jesus known. Proclaiming the mystery. Preaching the unsearchable riches of Jesus. So here's our commitment at Seven Mile Road. Mission will never be a wing of our church. It will never be a department of our church that a few of us are on. We've got one plan for mission. And that is the lowly people gathered here. You're it. You are our only plan for mission. If we're going to be on mission in this church, it is going to be because... Lowly people are making Jesus known in their city, in their community, in their culture, and their country. You're our only plan. Ephesians 4 will tell us that God gives to the church pastors and teachers so that we can build up the saints to do the work of ministry. 
that what you gather here to do is to breathe in so that you can be sent out. We're equipping you to do the work. That is, that you are fed here so that you can go and feed. You are taught here so that you can go and teach. You receive here so that you can go and give. You are invited here so that you can go and invite. It is going to be through your lips and your lives that the message and mercy of Jesus is made known. That the mystery is told, that the unsearchable riches of Christ is proclaimed. Mission is lowly people making Jesus known. And yet before Paul's done, he'll give you one more thing. The why. The who, the what, and the why. Why, Paul, do we do mission? Now we've already answered that in part. We talked of the benefits that come with mission. People who are dead in sin can become alive in Christ. People who are objects of God's wrath can become objects of God's mercy. People who are headed for destruction can have eternal life. The benefits are unsearchable, the riches that are in yours in Christ. But Paul will give you one more, even greater reason for mission. Why mission? And Paul will answer. Mission is lowly people making Jesus known so that God is highly glorified. So that God is highly glorified. What happens when lowly, sinful people like you make Jesus known in this city and sinners are grafted into this community called the church? What happens through this church? Verse 10 tells us. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That means that as lowly people make Jesus known, God is highly glorified. God receives glory on the earth, that is, we, the redeemed, gather in settings like this to glorify God. But not only on the earth, but even in the heavenly places, God receives glory. It's through the church that His wisdom might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is, that the church is on display to the heavenly realms of the wisdom of God. The heavenly authorities and rulers, those are words used throughout Ephesians to describe the realm of angels and even demons. So, so here's the idea. That it's going to be through the church that the angels and demons and their realm come to see the wisdom of God. Okay, what does that mean? Well, the angels get to see this God who's a creator. And they get to see his splendor and glory and majesty and might. But remember what we said from Genesis to Malachi. They are watching as God makes these promises to this people, to human beings. And they watch as this story unravels. And they see where it's going or where it looks like it's not going. Sort of like that the demons were there watching as Malachi comes to an end and this promise looks like it's coming to naught. Sort of like Jesus goes and dies and they can celebrate thinking they've won. But then what happens? Jesus rises from the dead and the church is born and sinners are grafted into this community and then the promise of God is fulfilled and they too go, oh my goodness, he did it. The wisdom of God. 
so that it's through the church, sort of like a trophy on display in the cosmos, that even the angels and demons, that their realm goes, did you just see what he pulled off? He kept the promise. These sinful people have been brought in. He did it. 1 Peter 1 verse 12 says that the angels love to look into salvation. Because they don't get to see what we see or experience what we experience. We get to sing, I've been redeemed. I, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. They don't know that. And so it's through us that they witness the work of God in salvation. And through us that they go, do you see the wisdom of God? It's through the church that even the heavenly realms are made aware of the wisdom of God. What he had intended from eternity. The church is like a trophy on display to the cosmos of the manifold wisdom of God. I, I don't know if I can communicate it well enough. Read verse 10 and consider what God is doing in the cosmos through the church. That this is on display so that even in angels and demons might say, Oh, the wisdom of God. Do you see what he did? Do you see what he pulled off? We're on mission so that God might receive glory in heaven and on earth. So that with us, even the angels say, Oh, the unsearchable riches and wisdom of God. So here's the thought I want to leave you with. That means that what's happening in Northeast Philadelphia, 525 Welsh Road, as the gospel is made known by lowly people here to the community and city, and as sinners are grafted into this community called the church, that what is happening here is on display to the cosmos, causing angels and demons to say again, oh my goodness, he did it again, this time in Northeast Philadelphia. And for the demons to say, oh my goodness, he did it again, furthering their defeat, this time in Northeast Philadelphia. You see, it's a humbling thought to think that what you're being swept up into is this cosmic global work that God is doing. That you are a part of this thing called the church. People from every tribe and culture and country, all the nations of the earth, on display to the heavenly realms of the wisdom of God. That ought to humble us. It's, it's sort of like God is painting this grand painting for the cosmos to see, and we're just a small brushstroke. That, that's what we are. We get to play a part in God displaying His wisdom to the universe. But while it humbles us, it should also thrill us. Seven Mile Road is on that canvas. You are on display to the cosmos so that all the universe might say again, oh, the wisdom of God. He did it. He accomplished it through Jesus. And now some sinful folks, some lowly folks in Northeast Philadelphia have been swept up into what he's doing too. Oh, the wisdom of God. Paul ends this text, not with your head floating a million miles above in the heavens, but verse 12. It's through Jesus Christ our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Paul brings you from the heavenly realms back to the earth and here's what he leaves you with. 
this God, this God whose wisdom is on display before the universe, before whom heaven and earth trembles, that God is yours through Jesus Christ. He brings it down to you on your knees in your home and says, that God of the universe is yours through Christ. The God before whom the angels and demons tremble, that incredible, immortal, unbelievable God is Dad, Father, Papa to you because of Jesus. It's through boldness, with confidence that we get to access that God because of Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you, if you've come here and you do not know God, verse 12 leaves you with this promise, you have access to God through Jesus Christ. He is doing an incredible work. All of history is moving to the point where He will receive ultimate glory in heaven and on earth. And you get to access that God through Christ. By doing what? By confessing that you are less than the least and that you need Christ. And if you're a Christian here, then this is my invitation to you. Get on mission with Jesus. Because lowly people like you and me make Jesus known so that God is highly glorified. Let's pray.